This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This is actually another throwback episode, Throwback Thursday, TBT, for those listening on the day of release at least. As the war in Israel rages on, and we are now mid-December 2023, I decided I would continue putting out a mixture of Israel-related and other kinds of content, and this episode specifically is Israel-related. Uri Alon is the founder of the Salad Trail, one of my favorite places in Israel. And Uri is an amazing, amazing guy who interviewed a bunch of years ago on my live tour to Israel, where I did about 25 interviews in two weeks. It was a really incredible experience, and Uri was a big part of that. He runs a farm called the Salad Trail, about five miles from the Gaza Strip, uh, really deep in the south of Israel, a place that literally has made the desert bloom, uh, grown incredible, incredible assortment of vegetation, flowers, cherry tomatoes, peppers, all kinds of different agriculture in the desert using hydroponics, using drip irrigation, all kinds of advanced technologies and true expertise as well as that indefatigable Israeli pioneering spirit. And uh, Uri suffered greatly on October 7th, both in terms of personal losses in his extended family and circle of friends, given where he lives. And also, financially, his farm is a place that is open to many, many visitors, thousands of visitors a year, birthright groups, families, and now it lies barren, both in terms of agriculturally, but also from any tourists. And so, releasing this in hopes that perhaps people will reach out, there's ways to sponsor, there's ways to support the farm, support their work, to get private tours booked for the future, as well as to dedicate rows of growth, vegetation to individuals, kind of old school JNF style, but pre-planting. And I hope people take advantage of this because Uri really is phenomenal and embodies so much of the beauty of the land of Israel. Such a wonderful person. At the interview you'll hear, the audio is not amazing. Uh, it was, again, a few years ago, and it was done in one of these cacophonous Israeli rooms with lots of hard floors and plaster on the walls and all that. So the acoustics were really quite poor. Uh, we did it live, but hopefully you'll be able to enjoy the interview nonetheless. So I present this throwback episode, to the founder of the Salad Trail, Uri Alon. We are here at the Salad Trail with Uri Alon, founder of the Salad Trail, which we'll learn about very shortly what that actually is. The Salad Trail is one of my favorite places in all of Israel. Uh, I was very excited when I decided to make this trip to make sure I could come down here to interview Uri, who I've met a number of times bringing groups here. Um, a remarkable, remarkable place that we're excited to learn all about. How are you, Uri? I'm wonderful. When you are here, come with your wife to visit me. I'm enjoying. <laughs> As we do this interview, I actually, my wife is on a tour going around the area. She's never been here before. So part of my excitement was to bring her and show her and let her enjoy a tour, which I've had the, the privilege of doing quite a few times. Uh, Uri, tell us a little bit about where you are from. I'm born in Israel, in the center of Israel, in a city called Rehovot. Ah, okay. 57 years ago and learn in Rehovot until age uh, 18. And then I go to the army, join the army to the navy. What, uh, what was life like in Rehovot for you? Uh, my hobby from I was young is to grow things. All the passion, or we say it in Hebrew, green thumb, or in English, green thumb, I get from my mother. Always in my house we have plants. I have a small nursery just at my home and my uh, mother teach me to raise unique vegetables and unique uh, animals. Interesting. 
Where did she know this from? She learned it herself or? Yes, she learned it by herself. She came from Germany after the Holocaust. She was went through the Holocaust? No, she her family ran away before the Holocaust from Germany. She came to Israel in age five years old. And her hobby was also plants and animals. And she raised all these unique animals that uh, later, I explain you, even we have them in my farm. Right. And this passion for agriculture and for animals get from her. Interesting, because you think about Rehovot, which is in the middle, as you said, of the country, the Tel Aviv region, the most populous region in the country. You don't associate that area with planting, with growing, with agriculture. No, this time it's not. But in the beginning, 80 years ago, Rehovot was the center of the agriculture of Israel, the center of the oranges, the center of where all the agriculture was. And now uh, they prefer to build building on the land. And now more the orchard came to the desert, here to this area. So why do you think it changed? I mean, what was different about 80 years ago versus today? The change is the modern and the population. Uh, you need to understand that in the year 1948 in Israel, there was only 600,000 Israeli here. Now we are about 8 million. So most of the center of Israel is full. And most of the people like to live next to the big city, next to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. But for my opinion, that my passion was to do agriculture. I believe, I know that I need to move to the desert and to start as a pioneer from the beginning. But the center was in Israel and even in Rehovot. But even the biggest University of Agriculture is in Rehovot. It's called the. Really? Of, uh, it's part of the Hebrew University. It's called Faculta Lechaklaut. It's uh, the Agriculture Science School. It's in the high education. It's in Rehovot. And then I live there and learn also in the university. Actually, I did not know that. That's really surprising. Yes, um, and also Weizmann Institute. It's also in Rehovot. Aha, interesting. That's more for science. Yes, yes. Interesting. So you, you grew up with this love of, of growing things, um, and your mother, it sounds like, gave you a good education and, and a passion for it. Um, what kinds of things did she grow in the house? Uh, we grow unique uh, vegetables in the garden, uh, like carrot, like different flowers, like a flower. I have a, a unique flower, I remember. It was more very exciting me that it's special plant that you, if you touch it, it's close his leaf. <laughs> and if you give it to eat, it's close the, the leaf and eat a meat even. So I grow crop like this, a plant like this. And even I learned from my mother uh, to do grafting, to take one plant, for example, a lemon, and to do grafting on it with a, a, another kind of uh, citrus, like a orange or pomela and other crop. So my mother teach me how to do grafting. And later I learned it in the university. But to do a unique thing, she teach me. But another animal, unique animal that uh, my mother grow and raise and uh, tell me, uh, the most interesting was a homing pigeon. And even this now, it's one part of my tour that uh, in a minute I explain. Yes, an amazing, amazing animal, which we'll get to. What was the Jewish community like in, in Rehovot back then? Did you have much Jewish education and was was your interest in agriculture in any way connected to the Jewish heritage? My father came from Germany also, and he learned in Cheder. Really? Interesting. In, in, when he came to Israel. But the time changed, and most of the people are not religion, and even my family, there was not religion. But always I interest about the connection between agriculture yeah. to the religion. So even in my farm, I show how you can still be a farmer and take care about the Shemitah rules yes. and take care about Ma'asarot and Tumot. And I teach other 
and even I have special garden, seven species garden here. If I remember my mother, to, in it's connected to the religion. I show people how you can grow in a desert all the seven species and even the four species. I have them. Here. Wow. Yeah, I want to come back later to the uh, discussion of all the ritual connections and the talk about the tithes and the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. I, I remember I once brought a group here during the Shemitah, during the sabbatical year, um, when the land has to rest. And uh, I wanted somebody to tell them about this connection to the land. And he said, he said you know, Rabbi, you, you tell them. I said, no, no, Uri, you tell them. And uh, you gave them the presentation much better than I could, <laughs> even though I'm a, a rabbi, because for you, you are living with it. Uh, and I want to, a little later, hear more about that. Um, so you went to the army. Did you have any connection to agriculture in the army, or no, it was just a standard uh, service? No, I was in, in the Navy. I was a captain of a military boat for 20 years. Really? And so you were a career military? Uh, yes, but uh, later, I served six years in duty, and another 14 years in uh, reserve. So when I finished the army, I go to learn in the Hebrew University. And then I came here to the south of Israel, to Moshav Tal Yosef. But all this time, I one month a year, I go to serve in the army. Uh, you know, even in the Bible, it's right that in one hand you hold in, in the sword and uh, in, in the and other plow in the other hand. The plow with the other. Yes. So even this time we still do it. Now I adult, but before for 20 years, I one month a year I go to sail in the navy and. Uh, do you also love the water? It's interesting yes. because you like the agriculture, but that's very different. It's different, but this is a... I serve in a sea of water, now a sea of sand. So it's <laughs> qu quite the same. <laughs> You're surrounded both yeah. ways. So what brought you eventually, after the army or after your studies, down here to the south? For those unfamiliar, we are here in the heart of the Negev, uh, the south part of the, uh, the state of Israel. Not the deepest part of the south, but relatively south, not far from Gaza, uh, for those who know. And though not a very populated part of Israel, probably the most empty part of the state, even though it's a huge part of its land mass. Um, what brought you specifically here, specifically to the desert and to this particular Moshav? When I finished to learn in the university in the year 1988, it was very hard to start with agriculture. Now in the modern time, you, it's in Israel, uh, a few years before, you can start from a new uh, moshav, a new settlement, and uh, the government subsidize you and you can start from the beginning. But from when, in the time that I start, if you want to start as a farmer, you need to buy a farm. And to buy a farm is a lot of million of a shekel or few, a lot of hundred thousand of US dollar and I don't have this much money. The only place in Israel in that time that you can get a farm from the government, it's next to the border, next to border of Gaza, next to border of Egypt. And we can find some in, in, in that time in the Golan Heights or in the Arava, in the south of Israel. But uh, I decide to go to this region because it's not so far from the center. It's only one hour and a half. Right. And my family stay in the center. So to be still in contact with the family and to do in this area agriculture, this without a lot of money, this is the only place that you can do it. So I learned to love this region. I don't came because of love of this region, I came with the passion for agriculture. Then I learned about the, this region and became to be in love with what I have here. And you joined a specific moshav, you said Talmei Yosef, which is yes. right here adjacent to the farm. So you were a part of this moshav, but they gave you a piece of land or the government gave you land? They, How does that work? Uh, when I came to the moshav, I, get, I need to buy a house. From the moshav? From the government. From the government, okay. From the government, not expensive. It was not expensive. It was only 10,000 US dollars. Oh my gosh. 
for a very big that, house. That's a good deal. <laughs> yes, and I get 15 acres free. Unfortunately, wow. it's not in the middle of Manhattan. Okay. It's in the middle, <laughs> that's that's in, about maybe $10 billion. <laughs> yes, it's in the middle of the desert. But I get it for free. So, you know, you get a free uh, present, you take it. So I get the land from the government, but I cannot sell the land. I get only the, I buy the right the to use it. I have the right to use it and can give it to my sons and the next generation. But I can sell the, the right to another one, but I cannot build building in ah. all this uh, uh, field. I can do only agriculture. This is the permission of the government to do agriculture. Uh -huh. I get water. I need to buy the water, but I give the connection, the, the, the connection to the water supply, and then I can grow whatever I like. So it's in Moshav. So it's Moshav. It's like a village. Everyone decide for himself what to do with his land. I don't force to do anything. I do tourism. My neighbor is electronic engineering. The other is a building uh, houses everyone decide for himself what to do so i decide to go on agriculture and unique that we will speak about it. and how do you all work together in a moshav because it's different than a kibbutz right yes so the, how does it function the, it's different from kibbutz because there every farmer it's like a village everyone have his own farm his own bank account and if I earn money, my neighbor lose, it's not affect me. It's everyone uh, deal with the bank uh, directly. But it's the society is together. The holidays, the Bet Knesset we have here, the celebration for Bar Mitzvah and things like this. So it's just a really tight, close community. Really. Yes, yes. Is what it is. Yes, it's a com community of, in the beginning, the Moshav was more socialist so everyone must to help his uh, the other now it's everyone with his own more money. capitalistic yes but when you came here the land was owned by the government you said not by the moshav so how did you connect to the moshav at that time you bought a house from the government and land from the government yeah. but it just became part of the moshav it's, because it was next to it or no it's part of the moshav all the members of the moshav get a uh, need to be checked if they are fit for the Moshav. We have uh, people that check if you are good for the society here, if it's fit. Our Moshav was American and South African. Interesting. English speaking, most of them are Moshav, a lot of English people came. This was the base of the our Moshav. So if you fit, uh, you can, you do one year in the Moshav, you grow whatever you like. And after one year, the member need to vote for you if it's okay to, that you go on. So you get the permission to go and to be a member of the community. But it's not... Uh, the, so the Moshav, it's effect about how many water you will get, how many... It's not about money. It's uh, more together we buy things and things like that. Interesting. So right away you started farming these 15 acres and what did you start to grow and how did you start to build a business? Because I learned in the Hebrew University Agriculture, I was professional of uh, growing a unique thing. So from the beginning, after one day that I arrived, all my luggage stay un <laughs> unpacked at the house <laughs> and I go directly to the field start to plant after one week i plant the first tomato crop and after two months i start to pick oh my and goodness the, and the highest price that i get from my tomato for almost 30 years was the first crop that i grow in this year was then it was about two us dollar per one kilogram of tomato usually it's half a dollar the farmer gets Wow, what was so successful? Just because they were it's so beginner, beginner luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, your beginner luck, I think, has continued for 30 years because 
those tomatoes are amazing. I take them, I eat them by the fistful. <laughs> yes, but they don't uh, pay for it. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. So you, um, you started growing tomatoes and, and right away uh, started having success. Did you know, did you have like a vision of like what you wanted to do long term? Did you know I want to grow you know, this and this and this and this? Or did you each year kind of add something new? How did your whole operation unfold, develop? When I start, I get a field from people that live here before and they left me a grape orchard and uh, that's all. And I start with the vegetables because it's the fastest crop uh, we can grow. And you wanted to make profit right yes, away. Because I don't have a lot, a big bank account. Right. I need to plant and or, to pick and to an income. Yeah. Yes, I need a very fast income. So. I grow, start to grow vegetables, then I decide to start to grow organic crops. I have a friend that was professional of a organic, so I believe of this system and I start to grow organic. And what does it mean organic? How does that work? Organic, it's meaning without chemicals at all. You grow vegetables, no any uh, chemical spraying and no any uh, nutrition chemicals, only natural. So you get a fresh fruit without any chemicals in the fruit. Is that more difficult? Yes, sure. It's much more difficult because you cannot, you, it's very hard to deal with the... Because of the bugs? With the bugs and the insect and the nutrition. We are now in desert. In desert, the ground is very poor and you need to add a lot of nutrient to the plant. And the, when you don't have it, you need to add it. So if you have chemical solution, it's very easy, but we to do it organic is very hard. And the yield, it's much less, and the fruit not look so nice like the fruit with the spraying. So if you take it to a, lock, to a regular market, they don't want to pay the, the same price because there is scratch on the fruit and some bugs sometimes eat a part of the leaf. So it's very uh, healthy, but not the, it's not paid as uh, you get the less yield and less quality. So it was very hard to grow organic. And I grow it uh, and try also to grow a mango and grow also peaches and grow herbs and grow flour to export. All these crops I grow for about 20 years. I try every year different crop, different method. But my belief what is not to invest a lot of money because a few years ago, 30 years ago, you can earn money from a very small field. But when the modern time go on and on, you must have very big fields. In very big field, you need to take a lot of money to invest every year. Right. So I don't have so many money and I don't want to risk all my family money and uh, all the income. So I do a small field and I guiding other farmer in the area about agriculture. Uh, you I became think, like a consultant. Yes. I start to consult other farmer how to grow, how to deal with disease of plant and I combine also the crops that I have here and also guide other farmers. So the income joined. How is it even possible to grow in the desert? I mean, one of the amazing things about Israel today, and I think one of the reasons I love this place so much, um, is because of the prophecies that we talk about that one day the, you know, the Jews will return to the land and the desert will blossom. And you see it now with your own eyes in this place, the desert blooming. It's an incredible thing. You walk from the car to the greenhouses and you're kicking, stepping in sand like you're, like you're on the beach or something without the water. How is it possible to grow in, in such an environment? All what you see here, it's connect to Israeli development. All what you see, it starts from the drip irrigation that developed in Israel, the first drip irrigation developed in Israel. And this idea can take the sand, the sand dune that we have here, and to add water and nutrient to the sand. And through the greenhouse, we control the weather. 
So due, even in the middle of the winter, we cover it with plastic sheet and the sun goes through the plastic and hit the greenhouse. In the summer, we shade, have shade on the greenhouse. So we can have effect on the nutrient and on the uh, temperature of the environment. So we can change the desert to a better area. So we can control the weather, we can control the nutrient, and then we can have this result like you mentioned just a minute ago. But even in the ground itself, are there enough nutrients to grow? No. The, so how do you... The ground don't have, have any nutrient. We have computer that check how many nutrients we have in the soil, and through the drip irrigation, we can add, we know what the plant need, because we check it in the computer and then through the irrigation system we add it to the uh, ground and then the plant have whatever he needs. So you're, you're, the drip irrigation is not just water, it's also nutrients? Yes. Ah, I did not realize that, but not chemical nutrients. Yeah, chemical. Yes, ah, yes, chemical so nutrients. that's not the organic? It's not organic. Got it, got it. So the drip irrigation includes chemicals to help it grow um, with, with the proper nutrients. Explain a little bit about what drip irrigation is. The idea of the drip irrigation is, uh, I tell you the story how it's, uh, how we find this uh, idea. A very famous uh, engineer of uh, Mekorot, the first water company of Israel, once go to visit his friend and he see a line of a tree, very small tree. One of the tree was the double of the size that all the plant. He came to the, this tree and find that down this tree there's more, uh, there's water pipe go with a very small hole in it. So it give one drop, one to another to the plant, to the specifically plant, and this plant grow very good. So in, understand that if you give the plant a little water all the time, like infusion to a man, so it's a best idea or the best solution for the plant instead of giving a lot of water at once and yes. then nothing and yes. then a lot yes like floating before or in a lot of country you give water by floating it's very bad because the roots need also oxygen and when you give a lot of water the oxygen in the soil go out and the plant and the roots also suffered so they need a little bit water but not too much so the drip irrigation is exactly it's a, it's more moist than a lake if you understand so this is better for the plant and the result is much better so we company named netafim develop it and now 70 percent of the crop in the world is uh, used by drip irrigation really 70 percent uh, of the world yes and most of it developed in israel the itself from israeli company company named netafim unbelievable and it, is that specifically more helpful in the desert when yes. there's less natural yes. rainfall or is it even helpful in a place where there's a lot of rainfall it's good everywhere because the situation with the oxygen in the soil is much better. In greenhouse, it's not effect of, of rain because it's cover. So, right. but when and even the most known crop like rice that you usually grow in floating, now we can grow it with drip irrigation with better result. All the Asia, Thailand and Vietnam, full of fields of rice. Now we teach them that we can grow without any water, with only the drip irrigation and better result. Now what happens when there's drip irrigation, but also a rainstorm? Does the rainstorm ruin uh, what happens? Because it, then it saturates the land. After a big rain, we need to add more nutrient because when you have a big storm, all the nutrient go down from the roots of the plant. You need to give another time the nutrients so even with small water you can feed the plant okay so it's not only water it's all the environment in the soil that we take care of it and this ends up producing also a tastier product 
the effect of the taste of the vegetables not affect mostly from the drip irrigation it's a more effect by the, the varieties that we develop we develop for example the sherry tomato that you mentioned sure that developed in israel the first sherry tomato really i did not there, know that yeah in the beginning it's called tv tomato because you eat it natural when, no, you eat oh, TV it. like TV. Like yeah. I thought you meant the Hebrew word no, like natural. No, 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 natural. <laughs> television. Television tomato because you eat it in front of the television. It's a snack. Small. Yeah. So in the beginning, it would start when it starts in Israel. In the when, when was this developed? In the year 1960, something like okay. this. In the in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Ah. We develop a unique variety for taste. Not only the shape, in, in interest, taste of the tomato is very interesting. You mentioned that you eat it before, and now we have a unique variety that we take care from the taste. So, for example, to uh, do a new variety of sherry tomato, it, tomato it costs one million dollar, and it takes Why? seven years to develop. Why is that? Because you need. It's not, uh, it's cross-breeding between different crops and until you have commercial crop, you, it's very hard because you need to know exactly what result you will have, what size of tomato you will have, what taste, what shape, what color, what uh, resistant for disease. We put also resistant for disease in the uh, gene of the tomato. So we don't want to spray a lot. So we develop a very strong plant. So it's take a lot of, take a lot of money to develop it and a lot of time. Well, wow. so how often do you do this? Do you actually Every year there is a unique uh, company that develop new variety because the competition in the market very big. So, so you don't develop it here? You no, I don't take develop it from somewhere I'm else. I'm part of the test. Sometimes they bring me new variety to taste in my uh -huh. farm to do exam to see if, how it's growing and I as agronomist help them to learn about it so you don't have to pay one million dollars to invent no a new me me, <laughs> me as a farmer no they need to sell a lot of seeds of tomato to earn this money right unbelievable so you continued growing things for many years eventually um, as you noted it seems like you became more of a tourist attraction you said you identified your profession as tourism yeah. now uh, and clearly anybody who comes here and people uh, are welcome and, and to come here of course we'll see each time tours and groups and buses from birthright or families or wherever else so how did that eventually come about i tell you in the beginning that if you want to be to earn a lot of money from agriculture you must to be very big and it's very a danger this time because you're risking the investment uh, yes and you, if it doesn't produce you, and you lose your money and you, uh, you're stuck yes this exactly so i don't believe to invest a lot of money and i don't have so many and my passion was to teach other about what i know to do because i start as professional not as a only to sell thing as a, as right. a market so I start in the beginning uh, to families, to my family, to show my farm and they love it. So from year to year, more people come to see my crop. And eventually in the year 2009, I start to work with Birthright. So a lot of the group of Birthright start to come to visit my farm and they like it a lot because here you can see what Israel, the real Israel is. How I say before, how Avram Avinu came here with his cattle just 20 kilometers from here, from Haran, arrived to this region, and he was a farmer like me. And a lot of Jews and a lot of people all over the world forget the, the source, the base. They forget it, but they love it. Every children like to pick and to learn about healthy crop. Every Ima, every mother like to show her children what crop, uh, how important it is to grow all this crop and to use it. So I like to show this and I develop my farm to a demonstration farm. 
So from the money I have, I can develop this museum of agriculture that's called the Salad Trail. And I do a trail through all the component of the salad. And this the idea here to show and to teach about agriculture. So what are some of the stops that people get to enjoy when they come here? We have different crop during all the year. And the, the idea, it's museum of agriculture, but the unique of it, that you can eat the, the art. Most museums, it says, do not touch on here, the glass. Yes. Here it says, please touch, please pick. <laughs> please touch and eat. This is the difference. Because I believe that after you taste this tomato, like we have about 10 different variety of sherry tomato. We have three variety of cucumber. We call them cute cucumber because <laughs> they are very small and unique. We have herbs. 60 different kind of herbs. We have oranges, we have pineapple, we have passion fruit, potato, peanuts, strawberry, seven species garden. All these crops that everyone is different station in the tour of about half an hour while the guide teach about the crop, explain about them, explain about Shnat Shemitah, sabbatical year, and about Trumot and Maasarot. And then the group start to pick and to eat in the field. And then after they enjoy it, they go to another field, learn about the water, how we use here unique water. And every crop, the idea here to show by fun how we can grow in a desert. For my opinion, success is somebody go out from here and remember after one year or two years or 10 years that the best tomato he ever eat, it was in the Israeli desert, that unique variety developed in Israel. And the water that we give to the plant to drink is sewage water. We use here sewage water to feed our plant. So if you remember it after 10 years, I succeed. Why sewage water? Because in Israel we don't have enough water. So we need, we take the water of the center of Israel, clean them and bring them to, clean them as a drinking water. And this is the water that we use here for agriculture. That water could even be drank. Y yes, we don't, uh, we don't drink them. We don't allow to drink them, but they are good to feed, uh, to give to the plant. We don't allow to drink them, but they clean as a drinking water. How does the levels of infestation, you know, bugs, in yeah. the crops compare here to what you're doing versus other fields that are using different methods or different locations? The idea of the farm to show the commercial way of the other farmer. I use the same system of all the farmer in the area, but in every crop is different uh, behave. For example, in the strawberry field, we grow here strawberry, we use only biological control. We don't spray at all. We have biological control that small bugs that eat, there are other bugs that disturb for the strawberry to grow. So every crop have different treatment. And because we grow in greenhouse, we can uh, reduce the amount of the spraying. For example, if I grow tomato in open field, I need to spray three times a day. Wow. In our greenhouse, we can spray once in three weeks. Oh my it's goodness. much less spraying and very healthy. So, you know, I know a lot of people who, um, those who are concerned with Jewish law, don't want to eat infested crops. Is it easier to clean these or are they, is there, there's less bugs that enter to begin with? Depending what crop. If you speak about strawberry, it's a, a lot of religion people don't eat strawberry because they're afraid. Or they clean it very carefully. Because it's very hard to clean it. Right. Our fruit very safe, but some don't believe it and don't trust it and will never, Haredim will never eat strawberry anyway. Uh, but our fruit is safe and no any bugs, but it's everyone believe. For uh, example, a uh, leaf, like lettuce. Leafy vegetables, yeah. This, we close the greenness hermetically and there is no any bugs and then you can eat it very safe. Do you sell um, for Pesach? with the romaine lettuce from Maror at all? I'm not selling anything. Right. I'm selling stories. Right. This is my farm focus. But all the farmer in the area is selling all this product. 
in Pesach or in Oler, the year the latest without any bug. Yes, this the, we are professional of it. All the farmers in the area. My farm is to show to a people what the ability of the farmer. I'm not selling other uh, out product. Right, right. Tell me a little bit more about some of the Jewish uh, questions. As we mentioned before, Shemitah, the sabbatical year, that according to the Torah, uh, once in seven years the land must rest. Uh, and it's very complicated for people to have vegetables on this year. And there's a lot of controversy about what to do. Some people allow that the land should be sold to non-Jews, to Arabs, and then worked. Others do not permit this. How do you, uh, can you explain a little bit about what the Shemitah is and how you, the different ways that you go about addressing it? I start with another thing that you didn't speak on it, is where you must to do a Shemitah. We are now in the south of Israel, in the place that not all the time the Jewish sit here. Only do, uh, from the Bible it's right that only until the time of David Amelech and later until when the time the Jew left Israel to the Galut, to Babel, okay, they probably live here. So in the Bible it's right that you should do a Shemitah in the border of Israel, it's until, in the south, it's until the river of the Nile. River, not Nile, excuse me, the river of Egypt. It's not sure where is river of Egypt. For my opinion, it's the Besor region that it's north from here. That's even the reason that Abraham Avinu came here and reached to this river. Never passed itself. We are now south to this river. So it's not sure where is this border. So it's not sure that it's, we must do a Shemitah here Interesting. or not. Interesting. So some rabbi say, okay, because we are, we are not sure if it was Israel or not, this in the, the different of time, for sure, and it's right, that in the time that uh, the Jewish came back from Babel, they never reached to this area. There is called Gvulot Olei Mitzrayim and Gvulot Olei Babel. You understand me? Just the translate the borders of the Jews when they came out of Egypt, meaning the first time they come into the land of Israel, and then the borders after the destruction of the first temple, when the Jews came back to resettle the land, not all of them, actually not even the majority, but many Jews with Ezra uh, came back to resettle the land and build the second temple. Uh, so they didn't settle these particular areas yes. right where we sit now. Yes, they didn't sit here for sure. But because of the doubt, we need to do Shemitah, but we no, don't need to bless in this region. But if you are not sure, you can do it. Okay, this one thing about the Shemitah. The Shemitah idea is not to give to the land to rest. There's another belief that it's give to the people the time to go and to work for God, to pray, to have one year, to think about God, to think about uh, behave. Not in most of the people was farmer, and when you are farmer, you start like me, start from the sun uh, shine until the sun go down, and you don't have a lot of power to work and to learn. So the Shemitah is to give to, the to people one year to rest and uh, not to give to the land to rest. Interesting. This is uh, what I learned about the Shemitah. So they take this idea and say, okay, you will not work in this year. God will give you food to eat, enough food to eat. You don't need to, uh, to work all the seven years. One year you can rest. But in the modern time, for example, if I'm a farmer and I have a market of my wonderful tomato, I send six years to the market. In the seven years, if I will not be in the market, somebody else come to the market and I lose all my customer. And in the modern time, it's not easy. But we still want to take care and to behave, and to, to remember what is right in the Bible. So we take the rules from the Bible and fit it to the modern agriculture. So what is right 
It's right in the Bible that you should not grow in the land. But it's not right that you cannot grow inside house. So, for my opinion and for other rabbi, it's have permission. If you grow in greenhouse, it's called a house. And if you don't plant in the soil, you can plant out the soil. It's not right. It's not permission. So what we do, we take the plant out of the soil, plant them in bucket, high of the ground, and inside greenhouse, you can use this crop even in the Shemitah year. You understand? Yeah. Because it's right, not in the sand and not in open field. And you talk to rabbis about it? Yes. Yeah. I talk and teach rabbis about it. <laughs> right. It's called Halachot Shel Shnat Shemitah. We have a very big book and I go through the book. For example, if you have orchard, I have orchard. So I bring people to pick from the fruit. So what you do in Shnat Shemitah? It's right that you cannot sell the product. I don't sell. Right. It's like you have a, in your garden a tree, give a fruit every year. You can eat in the Shnat Shemitah. You don't allow to spray it. You don't allow to prune the plant. But if you gave the plant to grow, you can eat from the fruit even in the Shnat Shemitah. So that's what we are doing. We don't sell the product. In my farm, I don't sell anything. So I right. don't have a problem with this. So we take care of the thing that right of the Shnat Shemitah, but we still are farmer. Very few of the farmer in Israel don't do anything in Shnat Shemitah. Most of them find the solution that the rabbi give them permission to grow in Shnat Shemitah we, and the fruit is safe. Right. There is a minority that do it. I think there's something called Karen Shemitah that helps support farmers. Yes, but it's very few of the farmers. But it's not, not so many. And of course, that organization works to try to get more farms to do it and they give them financial support and, and things like this. How do you deal with other issues within Jewish law? You mentioned Trumat Masrot, which is tithing of different sorts of tithes given to priests and, and uh, some to the poor and some at different places. Do you deal with these kinds of things here on the farm or is it only after uh, only farmers that are selling to, to market? Who deals with those kinds of things? It's right in the Bible that if you pick in the field and take it to your home, you need to do Tumoto Masarot. If you eat in the field, you don't need to do it. Right. So you can eat in the field without any... On the tours. On the tours. That's uh, the idea here in my farm. So you do, the people here don't take the product back to the house. So they don't need to do Tumoto Masarot. It's need only when you take it out from the field to the house. Interesting. And some of the things, you do sell a few things in your shop, right? Um, some spices and things like that. Are those from your farm? Uh, from the region. From the, from region. the region, not yes. necessarily from the farm no, itself. No, it's from a orchard, olive oil and honey uh, of the farmer in the area. And on those products, people would need to take off whatever tithes they would on their own, I would imagine. Yes, yes. I get the final... Uh, Product that they need to, the rabbi come to them and do Tumoto Masot. Ah, the rabbi does it here? No. No. In my, the product that I sell, I buy it after they do Tumoto Ah, the rabbi does it first and then yes. you buy it already yes. fixed? Yes. Ah, okay. Did not know that. Um, there's some other programs that you do here on the farm. I remember I once brought a group to do an Iron Chef. Yes. competition. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and are there any other special programs you do besides just the regular tour? Yes, I have plenty of them. Uh, the, the program is fit for families, not uh, a lot of family come uh, to visit uh, my farm, a lot of uh, soldiers just now. I saw a soldier group, right? two soldier groups yes. as I passed inside. Yeah, These soldiers now protect our border and they have off from the duty and I subsidize them to come to yeah. visit and to see uh, for what they are... Uh, what are they protecting? Yeah, what I they think are protecting. beautiful. Yeah. So they like it a lot and it's make them more... Uh, more strength yeah. to uh, protect us. Wow. Uh, the, the program that you mentioned, the Iron Chef, is the idea is to take the vegetables all the unique crop that I grow, even edible flower, even fruit like uh, 
uh, strawberry like passion fruit like uh, uh, tzabar you know tzabar sabres uh, I'm not familiar. Cactus, cactus. Cactus, yes. Cactus fruit. What is, does cactus grow fruit? Yes, yes. Because we were passing in on the way yes, here, yes. and we were looking at rows and rows of cacti. Yes. I said, what's it for? Just for extra pricks? Said, no, no it's actual it, fruit. It's for fruit. It's okay. the, the biggest uh, era in Israel of uh, cactus fruit. Okay, did not know. Okay, you need to try it once. It's okay. very, very unique. The tzabar, it's called the tzabar. So the group go and pick all the crop after the tour and do wonderful, uh, wonderful dishes. Even they are not professional. It's the 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 only place that they do by themselves. They don't only listening. They don't only eating. They need to do something from their own. Create so, to create. So this is the most uh, exciting thing. Another new program we have here, it's called Escape Garden. <laughs> like an escape room? Yes, and I mentioned about the seven species garden. Yes, tell me about that as well, yeah. Uh, like I tell you in the beginning, all what I learned, I learned from my mother. And when she passed away two years ago, mm. uh, to remember her name, I built this uh, garden, the seven species garden. And I tried to teach group about the seven species from the Bible? From the Bible, the, all the seven species that Israel blessed from them. And what, what are they? They, they are the Chita Seora, Gefen Rimon, Dvash, it's meaning, uh, Dvash, it's meaning uh, honey of a date. Date honey, yeah. Date honey, pomegranate, and fig. Right, and as well as wheat and barley. Yes, and, uh... I mentioned it in Hebrew, <laughs> yes. The seven species that Israel blessed, uh, I show here how they grow and I give uh, people to pick and taste them. But to learn and to uh, feel and touch the tree, I create a game that they have need to go in the field to find a secret uh, code on the tree that I mentioned and that the way they, when, while they're eating from the grape, they learn about the leaf, they learn the sentence, uh, I don't know how you translate it, Nichnas yain yatsasod means when, when the wine enters a person, secrets come out. Right? That, that wine intoxicates and also um, helps uh, express one's inner essence. Well, we say this a lot when it comes to Purim. When a person gets drunk on Purim, that their deeper self emerges. So I show the plant, I give them to eat directly. I, I show them about the fig, how it was the first bikini in uh, heaven. <laughs> And they see the meaning, so it's very nice game and, and I find groups and family in that way, not only to look on the tree, to find something called, it's make them unique. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Tell us a little bit about the animals that you said you're raising here and specifically the pigeons, the homing pigeons, which are amazing, amazing animals, which I love to see every time. According to the Jewish traditional, uh, the pigeon symbolized the Jewish uh, nation. It's right in Sefer in Ishayahu that when the like the Jewish kayonim achozrot laarubotehem, kacha ama yehudi. If you can just like the pigeons will return to their natural habitat to their home, so to the Jews we may be dispersed around the world and exiled, but ultimately we always gravitate back towards our home, the land of Israel. So. The pigeon, like I say, is very connected to me from my childhood because I remember my mother and me every time the, we go to visit my sister. She learned in school very far from our house. So we go in bus to visit her and every time we go with a box with pigeon, we drive for about 100 kilometers to get to her school and we take a box with pigeon, we release the homing pigeon, and the homing pigeon know to go back home. So every time we go on the bus, we take the box and release the pigeon from her school, and it came to my home. And I remember it as I was a child. <clears throat> when I became, became to be adult, I want to teach my son about this homing pigeon, because he was all the time in the computer, even we are in Moshav, in the <laughs> He wasn't in the fields? <laughs> no, not at all. 
and I tried to give him some of my childhood, my love, in a, my passion from the childhood. So I go and bring him a homing pigeon. So he agreed to give name for the pigeon, and, and for the, that was all. And I stayed to grow all these pigeons. What was the name? <laughs> <laughs> the name was a football player. Uh, which one? Ronaldo and Messi. Ronaldo and Messi. <laughs> That was the first pigeon, but uh, I stay with the pigeon and because it was my hobby, not my son's hobby, I go on and on, in, on it. In the year 2005, I joined the Israeli uh, club of racing pigeon and we have a race and I win as a champion of Israel. Well, where is the race? Racing. From where to where? It was from the north of Israel, from Mount Hermon until the south of Israel, that we are now here, about uh, 400 kilometers. So you would drive the pigeons up? Yes. And then And they, they fly, fly back. And wow. we do a competition about speed, not about who pigeon get first. The, the pigeon that fly the fastest, uh, the highest speed. Why was your pigeon so fast? Uh, Did you because, it in because a I love them so much. <laughs> and maybe they love mine. I raised them with love, this was, I believe. So I re released them in uh, Mount Hermon and they came here about four hours, after four hours from Mount Hermon. So 100 kilometers per hour they're, they're yes. flying. Yes. It's like a car. Yeah. Yes, it, uh, faster than a car. So I go and race in this hobby and grow more and more pigeon. But not only from my mother alone, I have a friend of my family that was a soldier in communication unit in the independent war. 1948, yeah. Yes, and my, uh, this uh, member of the family named Lea uh, used to bring a pigeon from Tel Aviv to the settlement to the kibbutz here around my Moshev in 1948. So when the Egyptian occupied all this south of Israel, the only way to communicate was this, with the pigeon that my aunt, this Lea, uh, that I mentioned, bring here to the soldier that take care of the, all the base around. So I learned from her also things from the independent war and even a very famous author named Meir Shalev write a book, A Pigeon and a Boy. And it tells the story of my family, how we used to grow pigeon, how she, this Aunt Leah, bring pigeon to the settlement here. And this is the story that I tell everyone. And when the group came here, they see the champion pigeon, they attach a message to the leg of the pigeon and send messages to Bar Mitzvah boy or for anyone. And it's very fun to see a pigeon fly in the sky, bring a bless to somebody else. It's very fun. Wow. And now during the war, they would, they would like put messages in the mouth or no. on the leg? How would they do it? Uh, we have a message tube. In Hebrew, it's called totaf. Totaf, it's like totafot benenecha. For tefillin, yeah. In tefillin. So it's a small message tube. And I, have, I, have, I get from the U.S. Army the original message tube from World War II. Wow. I still have it. So we put in this message tube a very small note, attach it to the leg of the pigeon and take the pigeon away from the house. For example, if a soldier go to the field, he take a pigeon with him and when he have a problem in the field, he attach a message and the pigeon fly back to the base because she born in the base. It's only one way. So when he, we have here tourists, we take the pigeon away from here or we give them when they go to Tel Aviv or whenever they like, go, they attach a message and the message come back here and I send it by uh, mail, the message that uh, they attach. <laughs> Is there ever a way to change their home, so to speak? Or once they're born somewhere, They need to it. born, that's it. They need to born in everywhere. Even a pigeon leave, their, leave her baby, leave her husband. She always come back home if she have the uh, opportunity. So I... When I buy a pigeon, I never uh, release them. Only the baby, the baby, the ability of the pigeon to go back 
they, they get it as their baby. Do we know why? It's according to the magnetic field of the globe. So they feel, they can smell. Every place in the world have different magnetic uh, sign. So the pigeon can smell it and fly even, and my pigeon fly from Cyprus. It's 400 kilometers over the sea. And I take a pigeon by yacht over there and they release there and they came back here after 36 hours. And they don't need to rest or eat? They need. Uh, 30, they need to rest because in the night they are not flying. So I go by yacht. I believe they find a yacht to the other side and sleep on the deck for the night and maybe in the morning they fly on. I don't know. But when you do the competition, uh, for example, from the Mount Hermon, they don't stop. Five hours of flying, they can do it without any stop. Incredible. Just starting to, to close, uh, Uri, what, you're, we're in a region that you know, is, is uh, considered by some to be somewhat dangerous, or it's, it's close to the Gaza border. Uh, driving here, you see uh, many signs for the Rafia crossing and things like this. Have, do you ever feel like you're in a position of, uh, of insecurity? Have there been issues when there have been different things coming over from Gaza, uh, whether rockets or the now the kites that are being sent over from terrorists. Have you had any issues in that regard? When I start with my site, I learned that you must to do, if you want to succeed in, in tourism, you must to be on the way to somewhere, to way to Elad, to way to Mount Hermon, to way to the Kinneret in Israel, Sea of Galilee. Here we are not in the way to anywhere. Here the tourists need to come directly to here. They go, they go for one hour, one and a half hour. To reach only to my farm, there is no any other site, tourist site in the area. So it was very hard to convince people to arrive here. More of this, the security situation in this region sometimes is very noisy. We are very close to Egypt border and very close to Gaza, but we are safe here. And I grow my grandson just 500 meters from the border with Gaza without any fear. I live here and even sometimes you hear in the news that there's some attack of a rocket. It's happened, sometimes it's happened, but it's in an area that the size of it, it's about 30% of Israel. So if one small rocket that can make damage to one car. It's like a car accident. That's all the damage that the one rocket do. It's affect about 30% of Israel area. So it's not real problem. It's in the media problem. And a lot of people afraid to arrive. But it's happened very, not very often. It's happened about every four years for a few weeks. And then it's became to be quiet again. In the last summer, there was a few days of rocket that shoot from Gaza. I live here 30 years and I never see any rocket. And I didn't hear any rocket. Okay, so in the media, it's look that you cannot live here. But I never see it and I grow very safe, my children and my grandson. And it's safe here. There is a unique time that's not safe, but in very few days in four years. So now it's safe. Now we are dealing with the Arab about peace agreement. I don't believe that it will be peace, but it will be quiet like we have in e with Egypt. We don't go to Egypt to visit, but we don't have war situation with them. And the border is quiet. So even we are five miles from the border, it's not affect us. The kite that you speak, there are burns some field, but it's not very... I never see a kite like this. Any of my tourists didn't suffer from it. So it's safe here and every few times it's noisy. So next week it will be quiet. So Israel, it's in complicated areas. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's where. But the more things that we do, pure Zionism. We believe what we are doing and we do it and show it. And this is the real nice Israel that you dream on. The real pioneering Israel that I hope all your listeners come to see. 
How can people learn more about the Salad Trail, learn how to come book a tour and, and come and enjoy this beautiful place? Yeah, I believe they can find it through our website. It's uh, thesaladtrail.co.il and they can connect from us over there. There is movie on the side. There's a lot of uh, interview and like this very nice interview. I hope you like. they like it. Wonderful. Uri Alon, the Salad Trail here in the south of Israel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.